You're listening to Wiretap with Jonathan Goldstein on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius XM. Today's episode, What We Lose. I'm not sure if this is an example of irony or just the universe's spite. But in the middle of writing this week's radio script for a show about loss, the word program I was using crashed and I lost all my work. As always, a box appeared on the screen. I'm sure you know the one. It asks if you'd like to submit a report. And I don't know about you, but I always decline. There's something about the word report that makes the whole thing feel like grade school, like you're being asked to tattle on the schoolyard bully who just flushed your homework or, say, your radio script down the toilet. So I started rewriting, but all the while, I couldn't help thinking, man, this just isn't as good as the stuff I lost. Whereas once it was just a script, now it was a romantic memory of possibly the best script I'd ever written. It's the same with the other stuff we lose. That amazing t-shirt that disappeared at the laundromat that made you look like the drummer in a metal band. The childhood toy your dad threw out. The girlfriend you lost. When something is lost, it leaves our realm and enters a mythological one. It becomes a symbol for everything we've ever lost. PJ Vogt writes about the internet for a blog and podcast called TLDR. And he recently featured a website called IFoundYourMitten.com, which is a gallery of lost mittens photographed in the places they went missing. The idea is that if you lose a mitten, you can check the site to see if anyone may have found it. The site is oddly fascinating, and you can find yourself easily scrolling through the dozens and dozens of photos of lost mittens. I asked PJ what it is about a lost mitten that stirs us. There is something plaintive and something sad about it. Um, A couple weeks before, I was walking, and a couple blocks from my apartment, I saw a little pink mitten perched on a fence post so that someone would find it. And it felt like if it hadn't been obviously like a little girl's mitten, maybe somebody wouldn't have taken the trouble. But like everybody knew that this was a little worse and a little sadder. Yeah. It's like one of the first problems you can have that no one can solve for you. You know, when you're like a small kid, like your parents are not going to run around the city putting up flyers with a picture of, you know, your mismatched glove. They're probably not going to buy an exact like copy of it for you. Like it's the first thing that maybe a lot of people lose in an irrevocable way. And it's the tiniest thing, but it's like a little preview of a lot of disappointments. Yeah, I think it's maybe it's also the fact that it's a it's a part of a pair. Right. And like the glove you didn't lose is fine, but it's useless. And the glove you lost, like you, I mean, you look at it and you you do picture it like being run over and like chewed up and like spit on. And like, you really want like a place that takes the mittens that are left and puts them together. It would feel like everything was fixed. Like it would feel like if we can do this, then like no loss is ever permanent. It's comforting to imagine that no loss is permanent, that there's always a chance that we can reunite with what is lost and return to how things once were. She had the salmon. 
he had the steak. And during dinner, they drank a bottle of Pinot Grigio. It was their meal at their place, something they looked forward to all week. Usually, when they were done, she would wait by the door, doggy bag full of French bread and pickles, while he would fetch the car. But not that night. I'll walk with you, she said. She'd worn heels, but he'd only parked a few blocks away. It was the beginning of summer, and the world was room temperature. They walked along, he chewing a toothpick and she holding his arm. After a block, she stopped, took off her shoes, and shoved them into her purse. She continued along, barefoot. Seeing her like that reminded him of when she was a girl. It gave him a thought. Remember our first month together, he said. I'd carry you everywhere we went. You did not, she said. She remembered one outdoor concert where he'd hoisted her onto his shoulders so she could see above the crowd. And one time, having fallen asleep on the couch, he'd carried her to bed. But that was it. He remembered things differently. For him, that whole first month, her feet never touched the ground. It was a month where he was always grabbing her from behind and swinging her around, or cradling her in his arms, legs swinging, head tilted back, laughing. She was still the same size as when he'd met her. I bet I still could, he said. Don't be a fool, she said. Let me try, he said. Keep walking, she said. You don't think I can. He ran ahead of her and hunched over. Get on my back, he demanded. She walked around him. He couldn't see her face, but assumed she was smirking. He walked in front of her again and hunched down like a trained camel. Just until the stop sign, he said. I'm carrying food. Put it in your purse. I'm in a dress. Get on board, he pleaded, until finally she did. To the corner was a breeze. He did it at a trot and spun her around when he got there. The pleasure a man feels with the warmth of the woman he loves upon his back, he thought. They were like some post-apocalyptic, two-headed super creature. As he spun, she laughed. Okay, she said. Are we done here? Just a little bit further, he said. She didn't feel as silly as she assumed she would. It was Saturday night and the streets were crowded, but being looked at wasn't so bad. It might have felt bad when she was younger, but now it didn't feel bad at all. He loved her and fueled on that love and the early summer evening and the wine. He trotted on, holding her secure. If you give yourself a hernia, I'm not taking care of you, she said. Just a bit further, he panted. She'd had friends who'd ridden on the back of motorcycles, and they described the feeling as a rush, a sexy one. She wondered if being carried like this was similar. She kissed the inside of his ear. 
He was sweaty and beginning to feel bloated. Giddy up, horsey, she said, the words surprising her. They were words she probably hadn't used since speaking them as a child to her father. He went along with it, trying to whinny, but the sound that escaped him was between a belch and a squeal. She tussled his hair. Good horsey, she said. Apparently, he'd parked the car further away than he remembered. Or perhaps they passed it. His shirt was nearly drenched in sweat, and the steak and wine had shifted position in his gut. He was feeling less like horsing around and more like napping. But her fingers were clasped around his neck. She squeezed her arms around him, slid higher up his back. She rested the side of her face against him and closed her eyes. She wondered if she could fall asleep like this, whether they could forget all about the car and walk home like this instead. Is this what it feels like to have a heart attack? He wondered. His father had had one at around his age. Heart trouble ran in the family. He stopped for a moment, shifted her around on his back, while looking up at the sky as though admiring the stars and not trying to stave off death. She had begun bouncing. Get along, little doggies, get along. Those were the only lyrics to the song that she knew, so she sang them over and over. She had a playful side, but over the years, he'd taken on the mantle of the fun one of the couple, and she the serious one. It was how their kids saw them, their friends. During the course of their marriage, she'd become sterner, as though picking up the residual sternness he'd had no use for. That's what happens in a relationship, she thought. People balance each other out. Get along, little doggies, she sang. Get along. Had she gotten heavier, he wondered. She didn't look it. Maybe a person's insides changed as they got older, grew more leaden. Maybe it was the leftovers in her purse. Perhaps he could playfully fall to the ground, roll around, grab her by the waist, lie on his back, her head on his chest. He was certain death was near. He sank to his knees. She dismounted, and he hunched over a parking meter, wiping his face on his sleeve. I'm old, he said. He had meant to say it while laughing, but it didn't come out that way. Without thinking, and not even sure what she was doing, she bent down in front of him. Get on, she said. He looked down at her while trying to catch his breath. What's the matter? Don't think I can? You're crazy, he said. Do you remember our very first date? she asked. That you probably don't remember. I was the one giving the horsey rides. They had had drinks at a dive bar, and she had been showing off about how strong she was. At the jukebox, she'd punched his arm with surprising force, and afterwards, on the sidewalk outside, before they'd even kissed, she told him to get on her back. Even though she was half his size, he'd been eager to get close to her, and so he got on, only for a few seconds, 
but it might have been during those seconds, as his feet hovered inches off the ground, that he'd fallen in love with her. Still holding onto the parking meter, he reached out his hand to grab hers. He pulled her up from her squat and in close to his chest, where he leaned into her. Just stay here with me, he said, while I catch my breath. They would soon discover that the car was only a few feet away, and when they got inside it, he would sit in the passenger seat while she drove them home. But just then, as the crowds on the sidewalk passed them by, they leaned against each other in the shadows, like a couple of teenagers looking for trouble on a Saturday night. As much as we may try to reclaim our glory days, inevitably they become lost to time. And yet there's a part of us that can't help wishing we could press pause. I recently asked my parents what they would do if they could freeze time just for a moment. So I stop time and everything is frozen. Your mother's frozen, her mouth is closed up. <laughs> right, and you can wander outside. And I can and... wander and everything is stopped. And, and it's not cold anymore. Well, I don't really, I don't have all the science of it worked okay, out. Okay, so but I essentially, put my coat on, I walk around. Oh, it'd be amazing. I'd like to look around and see what people are doing. So what would you do? Oh, I'd probably go into different houses. Uh, I'd be able to fly on the wall. They're doing nothing. They're frozen. What are you going to see? Well, somebody could be in the midst of something. Who the hell knows what? What the hell do you want to <laughs> see that for? I don't know. Well, Mom, I mean, you wouldn't have any curiosity. What would you do if you could stop time? No, I don't want to stop time. So if you snapped your fingers and all of a sudden time came to a standstill, you would just sit in your chair and, like, wait for it to restart? I guess I would. You see, it, that's the thing, Johnny. She wants me to say, if I stop time, I'd say, if I stop time, I know what's going on here. And, it's, you know, I'd be bored. I want to look <laughs> around and see what happened to other people if time stopped. You're nuts. But, Mom, you, you wouldn't be curious to see how your neighbors live? Who the hell cares how they live? You know, you could even go to the White House and walk into the Oval That's Office. Right. So what the hell would I do in the White House? The president would be sleeping. I'd be by myself looking at walls. What do I need to go there for? How do you know he'd be sleeping? It depends well, on your time. Of how do you know he'd he's be frozen. You'd be able to get really close to him. You'd be able to, like, touch his hair and... Yeah, but who cares? I don't want to touch him. See what he smells like? Who cares about him? I mean, he's a nice man, but I, I don't know. What do I need to She only wants to know what I smell like. Welcome to your personal navigation system. Head southwest on Bay Street towards Albert Street. At the next light, make a right onto Hampton Street. Merge into the right lane behind the minivan with the family that doesn't fall asleep in front of the TV alone.
every night. Turn right onto Allen Road. Continue on Allen Road for one kilometer. Do not picture your ex-husband Allen. Do not picture him on the balcony during your honeymoon in Acapulco. Do not picture him sleeping with his yoga instructor. Turn left onto Lakeshore Boulevard. Continue along Lakeshore Boulevard. Recall the summers you spent at the Lakeside Country House that your father sold to feed his gambling addiction. Turn right onto Oakwood Avenue. Slow down as you drive past your first boyfriend's house, Donnie. Don't stop entirely. He might still live there with his parents. Take a slight left onto Wellington. Drive past the donut shop that you frequented as a child. Do not stop to drown your problems in deep fried dough. Welcome to Jelly Donuts. May I take your order? You are now off track. Recalculating. In point two kilometers, take a left onto Benson Avenue. Drive past the company you've devoted 11 years of your life to. Turn right into the parking lot. Circle around over and over until the security guard tells you to get lost. The next light, make a right. Drive past the schoolyard where Miranda once asked you in front of the whole class why you smelled like cabbage and had emptied the garbage can on your head and you ran around in the snow with the can on your head till you smashed into a maple tree and collapsed to the ground. Turn left at the park. Make a slight left onto ramp 17. Merge onto the bridge. Drive straight ahead. Resist the urge to drive off the side into the river. That's it. Just a few more minutes until you're safe on the other side. You're almost there. Turn right onto Country Road. Arriving at destination. Are you not going to get out? Your mother will be happy to see you.
What are you doing? Where are you going? Recalculating. Recalculating. You are lost. We are lost. We are lost. We are lost. Recalculating. We do all that we can in life to avoid ever getting lost, attempting to ensure ourselves against loss of any kind. Often, the only thing we are prepared to lose is our sadness, though some cling dearly to even that. You know, I was thinking, Johnny, what do you have in common with Barbara Streisand? I, I don't know, I'm Jewish. Barbara Streisand insured her voice with Lloyds of London. I didn't know that you could insure your voice. Oh, sure. Lloyds of London will insure anything from anybody. Like Jennifer Lopez insured her tushy with Lloyds of London. Is that true? You know what would happen to Jennifer Lopez as a personal brand if her tushy was torn off by bears? Why would bears maul? You know what a bear would do, a hungry bear would do to your tushy? What? He'd pass. He'd be like, I think I'll go have some nuts and berries because that tushy is gross. Why would you say something like that? Imagine if something were to happen to you. What if you were to lose your essence? What if you stepped outside today? You're feeling like your usual glum self. You cross the street, you walk through whatever sad sack things you do. You wind up going to the restaurant. Somebody brings you a rose and you get a big smile on your face. You go home that night, you have great dreams. You wake up the next morning, you're a changed man. You feel happy. You come to work whistling. And the next thing you know, you're penning your own memoir and it's full of smiley face emoticons. What if that were to happen? Well, that sounds great. I mean, that sounds like a nice thing. That's the catastrophe I'm talking about. What, what, how is that a catastrophe? If you lose your primordial sorrow, the engine that drives you, this hatred of yourself and this definition of you I, based on just misery, depression... I wouldn't say that's... ...your can't on the world. If that were to go, what is going to pay for my pizzas? That's what occurred to me, because I was eating a pizza at the time, and I started to think... Wait, you're, what are you saying? I'm talking about insuring your depression. What? I want to ensure that you stay depressed. Why would you... All right, even if I was, I mean, even if I am kind of melancholic, kind I Kind mean, of melancholic? You're like a talking turtle. So you're, you, so you're telling me I'm trying that to keep you in your dark hole where you're my money-making little golden goose. You change that. I'm going to be getting phone calls from all the syndicators who carry your show. They want to hear witty platitudes from a sad man, a man much worse than them, right? Well, I mean, I think as a friend, you know, you'd want to see me uh, be, be as happy as I could be, right? Okay, I brought these papers along. I want you to sign them. What is this? This is the policy. Gregor, I'm, no, I'm not, I'm not signing an insurance policy. What did you just say about as a friend? Do you not want me to be the beneficiary of your staying depressed? I think, I think that's kind of an act of bad faith somehow, that you're banking on my misery. Come on, just sign the papers. I'm not going just to sign it. Just sign it, just sign it, just sign it, just sign it, just sign it. I'm not going to sign it. don't sign it. I don't want you to sign it. Okay, well, good, because I'm not going to sign something like that. Okay, fine. I'm just going to leave you with this thought, okay? I saw a dog today died. What are you trying to do right now? Just protecting the investment. I, I don't want to hear about this. I guess that's typical for life though, right? You get your expectations up, you get disappointed. Oh, you know what happened today? Someone crashed into your car in the parking lot. I saw them do it. What? Why didn't you do something? I did do something. I backed up after I realized I crashed. You ruined my car to make me sad? Okay, right now, give me just the temperature. Here you got on a scale of 1 to 10. 1 being Sylvia Plath, 10 being the blue sun.
On Wiretap today, you heard Buzz and Dina Goldstein, Gregor Ehrlich, and PJ Vogt. To check out PJ's blog and podcast, visit tldr.onthemedia.org. You also heard Drive Straight Ahead, written by me and Mira Bertwintonic. Earlier in the show, you heard my short story, Loss of Momentum, read by Jane Lewis. Special thanks to Carrie J. Griffith, whose segment didn't make it into today's show, but for his interview featuring tips on how to not get lost in the woods, visit cbc.ca slash wiretap. Wiretap is produced by Mira Bertwintonic, Crystal Duhame, and me, Jonathan Goldstein. Tune into Wiretap Saturdays at 3.30 and Thursday evenings at 11.30. You can also hear Wiretap across North America on Sirius XM. Subscribe to the free podcast at cbc.ca slash wiretap, where you can also download the latest Wiretap ringtone. Do not stop to drown your problems in deep fried dough. A taste of reverse psychology with every ring of your phone. And a special request. Wiretap is battling it out in a public radio showdown, and we need your help. Visit cbc.ca slash wiretap for information on how to vote. way.